This afternoon is our third and final installment on the subject of the theology of Luke and Acts in our larger series of Reformed Biblical Theology. We have already considered that what is presented before us is eyewitness salvation history. These things were not done in a corner, as the Apostle Paul said to Agrippa. There is the theme of God and his sovereign plan. Nothing happens by accident, but even the very crucifixion of Jesus is according to God's determinate plan and counsel. Third, there is the theme of all mankind, Jew and Gentile. The Lord Jesus came to fulfill the hope of Israel and to be a light, to lighten the Gentiles. Fourth, we looked upon the name of the Lord and specifically the name of Jesus, which is exalted. He has been given a name under heaven that is above every name, and his is the only name by which we must be saved. Fifth, we looked at the Holy Spirit, uh, to whom Luke uh, gives even greater attention, so it seems, uh, than even the other gospel authors. And we see the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, significantly even in the earliest times of uh, the, the life of Christ as the Holy Ghost came upon the Virgin Mary, the power of the highest overshadowed her to produce that one who was to be called the Son of God. So those are several themes that the good Dr. Luke uh, raises to a certain level of prominence that is unique in his two-volume uh, series of the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. We round off uh, this afternoon these themes of Luke and Acts, three final uh, points. That is, Savior, the Savior, and salvation. That's the sixth theme and the first for this afternoon. The Savior and salvation. Seven, repentance, and eight, wealth and poverty. So points six through eight in our three-part series on the theology of Luke and Acts being our three points this afternoon, the Savior and salvation, repentance, and wealth and poverty. So the Savior and salvation... Just as with the Holy Spirit that the author Luke, under inspiration, highlights, so also with salvation early on in his gospel account, we have this theme, Luke 1.77, that is, uh, that the chosen one is to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of sins. Simeon, when he takes up the Christ child in his arms, 
declares with great gladness and joy before the Lord, mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Being saved is of utmost importance. It is, of course, of ultimate importance in Christianity in general, but as a particular uh, uh, theme, uh, the very language of being saved is especially drawn from this two-volume series of Luke and Acts. Peter, as he preaches in Acts 2.21, declares, It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there are two, two themes right there that seem to be a peculiar and unique to Luke and Acts, the name of the Lord and being saved. Now, of course, Luke does not invent these ideas, nor does the apostle Peter. They're drawn from the very Old Testament, are they not? This is a quote from the Old Testament, and Paul takes it up as well in Romans chapter 10. That is, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We must be saved. We need salvation. Salvation from what? Salvation from our sins. Salvation from the wrath of God. We must flee the wrath to come. And salvation cannot be had anywhere. Salvation is not a a common commodity that can be accessed easily. Like going outside and looking up and enjoying the light of the sun, we can do that right here in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. And if we happened to be in Moscow, Russia, we could do the same if it wasn't a cloudy, overcast day. But that's not the case with salvation. Salvation is deposited and laid up exclusively in one source. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The Lord would save sinners. He would save the Gentiles, but he would first, as it were, make an attempt to save his own people. Jesus told his disciples to go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel because they needed to be saved. They were lost. They were under judgment. And so, that was the pattern of Uh, the apostles, they were to go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Why? That they might save their countrymen. This was Paul's desire when he wrote in Romans 9, my desire above all is that my fellow countrymen, the Jews, might be 
saved. And so, Paul and Barnabas, when they go to Antioch, Pisidia, they go to the synagogue to rescue their brethren because their brethren are in sin. And if they die in sin without the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be lost forever. And that's what missions were. And that's what missions always are. They are rescue missions. It's of ultimate urgency and importance to be saved. Men and brethren, say say Paul and Barnabas in the synagogue, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. The Lord is throwing a lifeline to his people that they might be saved, that they might enjoy salvation. This is no small thing. This is not, friends, Christianity is not cosmetic. You know, if you, if you absolutely can't dress up and, and make yourself look nice, you're, you're going to live. Maybe you're not as presentable as you would like to be in a certain place. But we've got to distinguish, don't we, between things that are absolutely urgent. If, if for example, our house is on fire, it's a burning inferno, and we're all concerned about that, that brand new suit that I just bought from Men's Warehouse... I mean, I paid a lot of money for that suit. Leave it. Let it burn, man. It's it's perishable. It's superficial. It's cosmetic. Now, if your own child is in that inferno, then it makes perfect sense. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? We need to be saved. And Luke emphasizes this. The good doctor says, yes, try to get healthy. Exercise. Diet. When you're sick, follow this regimen. Perhaps use some of this medicine. But I'll tell you what you really need. Because you can be sickly, all the way to an early premature death. But if you have been saved and you are in a right relationship with God and you have eternal life, it doesn't matter. Closely linked to salvation and being saved is, of course, the Savior. And so... The very language of the Savior has a certain prominence in Luke and Acts. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. We wouldn't have that verse, would we? That very memorable verse. Were it not caught and 
retained by the good Dr. Luke. Him, says Peter in Acts 5.31, captured by the historian Dr. Luke, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Durham has a very intriguing quote when he speaks of this particular verse. He says concerning Jesus, he has encountered wrath and is overcome. He, that is Jesus, is absolved and justified before God. And so exalted to be a prince and a savior. You see, he has satisfied justice. He has been proclaimed righteous. He has been vindicated. And so he is set forth, exalted at God's right hand to be the Savior, to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. He is the Savior. He is the one greater than Joseph, who has been exalted and lifted up, having first uh, struggled and been under uh, the heavy hand of trials. He has been justified. He has been vindicated. Now, our justification... It is a different kind because we are sinners and God, by law, does not justify sinners. No, rather, he condemns them. But the gospel is a system and an arrangement whereby we can be proclaimed righteous though we are ungodly because the righteous one who was accounted, he was even made sin, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians He did everything that his father would have him to do, and he gave his life, and therefore the Lord rewarded him and vindicated him and made a show of all his enemies openly, triumphing over them in his resurrection. And so we can look to Jesus, the Jesus whom God has owned, whom God has exalted. This is my son, and I have honored him, and I have given him a name that is above every name. And though you're a sinner and you deserve wrath, you can be saved through this Savior. That is the message of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. The Savior and salvation. Next, repentance. Repentance is another uh, theme and a doctrine that seems to be more at the surface comparatively than with other Gospels. Uh, Much of this, interestingly, is drawn from uh, that portion of Luke's Gospel that is not in the other Synoptic Gospels. This is what is called the Perean ministry. It's approximately Luke chapters 12 to 19. It's there 
not in Matthew, Mark, or John, where we hear our Lord Jesus Christ speak the following words. Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things, that is, Pilate mixing uh, their own blood with the sacrifices. He said, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The good doctor. The good doctor, Luke, only is the one who records for us in Luke chapter 15 the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. These are precious things, things that are lost. They go lost. They are are ruined. There is no hope. But then they are recovered. And when they are recovered, there is great rejoicing, of course, especially that that most memorable and uh, impactful parable of the lost son. Finally, the father, he sees his son coming over the hill in his rags with pig manure all over him. And the father runs. And he throws his arms around him and the son can just barely get out any words that he is unworthy of of the father's kindness but only let him be one of the servants. This, my son, which was lost, he is found. And what is the moral of the story? What's the point of these parables? Jesus makes it clear. There is greater rejoicing in heaven over one sinner, what? That repents. Than of 99 who don't need repentance. So that means if someone who has become foul and stinking in their sin, if they repent, they genuinely repent, join in the Lord's celebration. Don't look down on them. Don't despise them because you are really no different. Repentance is absolutely necessary. It's a fundamental ingredient of salvation. In Luke 17, uh, this is is, uh, put forth as not just something that's at the beginning of the Christian life, but really repentance should mark the entire life of the disciple. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespasses against you, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. 
And so it's not surprising when we come to the Acts of the Apostles, repentance is at the forefront. Repent ye therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And Paul's ministry in Acts 20, 21 was marked by testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Now, The salvation that the Lord Jesus offers is absolutely free, and it is absolutely free to the one who does not the works of the law, but simply believes, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. However, the Lord has ordained that the faith that is to be exercised and that calls upon the Lord and receives with empty hands his free grace is a broken-hearted faith. Otherwise, it's not sincere. How can you look upon the Savior bleeding and dying knowing why he hung there for your sins and mine without any heaviness or brokenness of heart? without any determination to say no to your besetting sins once and for all. I'm dead to that. If it's uncleanness, I am dead to that uncleanness. If it's a deception and dishonesty, no more. I'm turning over a new leaf by the grace of God because he loved me and he gave himself for me. Now, the gospel is infinitely free, as we have said. And although there can be an excess on the side of repentance, sometimes there can be preaching that is so heavy on repentance that it actually ends up eclipsing the freedom of the gospel. That certainly is a great danger. However, perhaps the good doctor supplements in his teaching, not corrects, of course, because there was no error in Mark or Matthew or John, but that there is to be an emphasis according to the revelation of God to keep us in balance, to keep preachers in balance, and that we might see souls saved and growing in the Lord. And inasmuch as repentance is a vital ingredient in our conversion, so also in our Christian life, we are to be taught again and again. We must humble ourselves and confess our sins. And when we find ourselves in sin, if someone maybe lovingly points it out to us, and even if they don't so lovingly point it out to us, let us humble ourselves. Let us repent. It's just simply acknowledging reality. Don't be stubborn. Don't dig in your heels. 
Don't resist. Oh, but pastor, repentance is for the unconverted. Well, then why did Jesus tell his disciples? Rebuke your brother, and if he repents, forgive him. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, says James to his readers, Christian readers. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You adulterers and adulteresses, do not make friendship with the world. But that's James, and that's for another day. Finally, wealth and poverty. Now, there are more than, uh, more than eight themes. There are uh, a number of sub-themes, and we just don't have time to deal with all of them. And arguably, one of the sub-themes might better be included in these eight, but... Uh, All of these seem to be especially prominent in Luke and Acts. And wealth and poverty does seem to stand out as well in Luke's gospel and crossing over into the Acts of the Apostles. It is Luke, unlike the other gospels, who records the Sermon on the Plain. That's distinct from the Sermon on the Mount. It's very similar, but it's not the same sermon. In this sermon we hear, But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. It is the good Dr. Luke who alone records the parable. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he gathered so much grain that he built, he tore down his old barns and built bigger ones. And he he spoke with his soul, and he said, Soul, you have goods for many years. Eat, drink, take your rest. Thou fool, this very night thy life is required of thee. And so says Jesus, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's wealth. That's uh, what is important. That is what is going to last. It is Luke and Luke alone who records the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And he gets very descriptive, doesn't he? And of course, Luke, being a doctor, it makes sense that as a historian, he's very descriptive and he pays attention to detail. Listen to this detail. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. That is to say, whatever he wanted, finest stuff. He would sneer upon anything that was subpar. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. There's this great contrast. 
came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now it's interesting that Luke captures the language of Jesus. Of course, that's all he was doing. Just because Luke emphasizes certain things, let's not think that he put anything into Jesus' mouth that wasn't there to begin with. But he captures certain things and certain uh, uh, nuances and emphases. And notice how that Jesus doesn't use the language of believer and unbeliever. Now, was Lazarus a believer and the rich man an unbeliever? Well, yes. But he's intentionally making the contrast here, at least in some degree and in some sense, between the two conditions of these men and that they are reversed. And it's because unbelief, when it's given the opportunity of wealth, often abuses that wealth and rests in it, and becomes tight-fisted and selfish. Whereas oftentimes, simple faith flourishes in the absence of wealth, often because there's nothing to choke it and impede it, at least outwardly speaking. The poverty and the need of especially the believers in the Acts of the Apostles is presented to us. There is attention given to the need of believers. The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that ought or any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them. And brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need." This was a distinctive feature of the early Christians, is that they were selfless. They were so absorbed by Jesus that what are these things? I mean, they're just not that important. And that's a mark of saving grace, where anyone who has any measure of wealth and outward blessing. They just don't see these things as important as they used to be. It's more relative. Now, some would make the mistake, the very tragic mistake of suggesting that this was a primitive kind of socialism. Wasn't that at all? A brockle points out that If indeed there had been a kind of socialism here, then there wouldn't have been any almsgiving anymore. And that still continued. 
And these things were, they were voluntary. No one was being forced. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they do the same thing. But they, they openly indicate how much they sold the land for and said we're pledging all of it, but they privately held back a part. And that was their sin, and Peter says it. When it was in your hands, was it not yours to do with as you pleased? But you've lied to the Holy Ghost. There was a concern, a voluntary concern. And there was, a, there was an esprit de corps. There was, the, there was a kind of happy virus that had spread, the virus of benevolence. I can't see my brother who's united to the Lord suffering like this. I can't do it. And in extreme cases, as it appears, there was some extreme uh, instances of poverty. People said, that's, that's it. I don't need this land. I'm just going to sell it. And Paul leads in the great benevolence scheme later on for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And we have even an earlier uh, instance of this kind of thing in Acts 11 uh, when the Holy Spirit signified through a prophet Agabus that there should be a great dearth or famine through all the world. Then we read the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And here perhaps a little bit of sanctified speculation. Is it conceivable that the good Dr. Luke was more well-heeled than others because of his profession, and having been converted to the Lord Jesus like like Zacchaeus, was taught by God to value his wealth properly and to call attention to the generosity of Jesus that he spread through his disciples as well as to expose the great danger of the abuse of wealth and of riches. Well, we won't know for sure until we get to heaven to ask him. But it is enough for us to say that if we have freely received, let us freely give. Well, we close this short segment of our larger series in Reformed Biblical Theology on the theology of Luke and Acts. Let preachers preach salvation. Let them preach salvation to sinners and let them tell those sinners that there is hope and that there is salvation in no other than the Lord Jesus. And let those sinners honor the Savior How can they honor the Savior? They can honor the Savior by 
repenting and believing the gospel. As one pastor of old has said, now to one so high in power over us, he expects we should pay a suitable homage. That homage the Holy Scripture calls by the name of faith, believing on him. Honor the name of the Lord Jesus by repenting and believing the gospel. And in repentance, hold loose to things. And demonstrate repentance by a large heart that is willing to share, that is willing to give. And how can we not do this when our Savior gave everything? May God enable us by his Holy Spirit to return to that primitive Christianity where the believers were of one heart and of one soul and none of whom said that any of the things that he possessed was his own. And may it be free, without compulsion, as it was in the heart of Jesus who was not forced to give his life but freely laid it down for us all. Amen. Shall we pray? We exalt thy name, O Lord Jesus Christ, thou Prince and Savior, who has been exalted to the right hand of the Father to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Lord, we honor Thee, and we will follow Thee, and teach us in the following of our Master, the Lord Jesus, to be as He was, poor in spirit and large in heart, and with open hand, relieving the necessities of the saints And as we have opportunity, may we do good unto all men. Receive us, O God, uh, we pray through Christ. Amen.